Welcome to the Unapologetics Podcast. Join Dr. Timothy Gillespie and Dr. Alex Bryan as they unapologetically talk about theology, philosophy, and trying to find the right questions. Hey everyone, welcome back to Unapologetics. I'm here with Dr. Alex Bryan. Alex, how you doing? I'm well, Tim. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. You know, um, the people listening can't see this, but you have a Christmas tree flickering in the background. That's very, very festive, I have to say. Is it over the top? Well, no, nobody can see this, so it doesn't really matter. It's, well, it's, I'm asking, I, I'm asking it's, you. It's over the top of you, but it's just because it's a taller tree than, than you sitting there. No, it's good, man. It's good. We need to have some, I think we need to have some Christmas cheer. We've, we've been struggling at our house, honestly, to put up, to put up a Christmas tree. So we've got all the decorations, everything's out in boxes. And I asked my wife yesterday, do you want me to get the Christmas tree down from the, from the attic? Cause we don't, we don't buy a new tree. Cause California needs, California needs all the trees we can get. I'm saying in Washington, you have a plethora of trees. You're like, you're drunk. Why don't you trees. just get it? Why don't you just get it shipped from Colorado, the same place you get your water? <laughs> because, because we're depleting their natural resources as it is. <laughs> I want to leave a little something. No. And like our tree already has the lights on it. So it's really nice to come in. But then she does this, all this decorating. And I, I asked her if she wanted me to go get it. And she's like, eh, wait a few days. She, she is the uber decorator. I mean, for those that yeah. know your wife, she's like pretty, yeah, amazing. And we we did the, uh, we pulled the uh, Chevy Chase Christmas vacation. Our tree was so wide. We could, <laughs> we, I didn't think we were going to get it in the house. Like we <laughs> totally have an oversized tree. We, we measured the height of the tree to make sure it could get it, but we failed to realize that the girth was a problem. <laughs> <laughs> So how'd you finally get it in? Do you have to take it around to the back and go through a sliding glass door? Or? I just started yanking on that tree as hard as I could. And it got, it got through, but it wasn't pleasant. <laughs> well, I'm sure it looks fine now. Oh, that's funny. That's funny, man. Well, everybody, welcome to the Unapologetics podcast, where we're kind of searching for the right questions as much as we're searching for the right answers. And today we wanted to talk a little bit about, um, you know, how do we kind of pursue truth? What are the rules to that? We, we laid out last, last time, we laid out a little bit of the rules of the road when it comes to the podcast and how we're going to kind of engage in this. And just so you know, if you started listening to this podcast um, from day one, it started with day two. And the reason for that is our day one was a little all over the place. So our day two got a lot more streamlined. So technically this is day three, but it doesn't really matter. It's a podcast. It shows up on your phone and hopefully you'll watch it when you subscribe to it or listen to it when you subscribe to it. Um, so Alex, this is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about how do we pursue truth? What are the rules and how do you engage the Bible and the text? Um, so maybe give us a little bit of background and, and start us off in that conversation. So this may not be the most pleasant place to start, but I think defining a couple terms. So one is we, I think we used the term a week ago, epistemology, right? Um, so that's part of what we're going to do. So give a, your definition of epistemology, Dr. Gillespie. 
Uh, I mean, epistemology is essentially the study of truth and knowing is probably a better way yep. to say it, right? Not just truth, but knowing. How do we know anything? What is there to know? What can we know? Those types yep. of things. So, and then a second term I would use uh, is hermeneutics. Uh, and uh, that is essentially the branch of knowledge that deals with interpretation. So mm -hmm. if you can, you can apply it to lots of things in life. But when we talk about, for example, biblical hermeneutics, we talk about, well, how is it that we actually discover something in the text? What are the rules by which that we, or the tools that we employ to ascertain truth and knowledge from the text? Yeah, but that's simple, right? We learned that when we were little, in a little song, it said, God said it, and I believe it, and that settles it for me, right? <laughs> and I would like to be four years old again, because it's a sweet, innocent time before you start realizing that both of these sort of big words, epistemology, like, how do you know anything is true? that starts to plague you. And I don't say plague necessarily in a negative sense, but it starts <laughs> to plague you in your life. It starts to push you. How do I know that anything is true? How do I pursue truth? And then hermeneutics, you start to discover that in terms of scripture, it also requires some thought about, well, what is, what is truth in this thing? And it's not quite as simple as God said it. Well, for you, maybe. I mean... The, but the problem is, I think that a lot of people feel like, well, that's it, right? I just read the Bible, read it literally. That that should be enough, and I'll get all the truth that I need to know. Now, is there is there some? We're going to overuse the word truth. I can tell. But is there some truth to the to the statement that if I read the Bible, that's all, that's enough? Like, right or no? I don't think so. Ooh, okay. Um. So, so here, uh, here, here's the challenge. And I think we're going to, it's not that we're chasing rabbit trails here because this is precisely what we're going to talk about for the next, you know, 45 minutes to an hour here uh, with you. But I think, so there's a couple, there's a couple problems with that. When, when you're a child, your parents give you a select version of the Bible. Right. So usually certain stories, sometimes more appropriately told, reducing the R-rated stories to PG, you know, basically distilling it because, and frankly, that's totally appropriate, right? right. Uh, even my own, you know, my 10-year-old, that's my youngest child's 10, I still frame Bible stories in a way that's appropriate and clear. The problem is when you get older, you start to realize that uh, in one part of the Bible, it says that you should absolutely give 10% of your stuff to the poor and then the next chapter says you absolutely should stone someone to death that breaks the Sabbath. And you yeah. realize, wait a minute, wait a minute, uh, wait a hold, hold, hold on a second. Um, da daddy, daddy, I, I accidentally checked my, uh, uh, my uh, whatever, my Instagram account before sundown. I'm pretty sure I wasn't supposed to do that. Daddy, are you now going to stone me to death? Well, he didn't guard the edges. I mean, there there has to be some sort no, of no, and it's so right. right. So you begin to realize, wait a minute, it's not just well, open the Bible. It's you know, just read it literally. That doesn't work for very long. But so many people say that that's the way we're supposed to engage in this authoritative work, right? That we're supposed to, or at least, well, this may be interesting. At least we're supposed to take some of it that way, 
right? Then how do you how do you choose which you're to take literally and which you're to take, you know, subject a little bit more subjectively? Uh, I'm smiling right now uh, <laughs> at my conversation partner Tim. I mean, this becomes the challenge, and I think it's not. I mean, the way you frame that, Tim, I can't think of too many times, if at all, that I've heard that sort of an honest question asked because the reality, the reality is, okay, this is not you and I suggesting it. The reality is that the Christian community and the, and the tradition that we're a part of does precisely that. So there's certain parts of the text that we take absolutely literally as this is precisely what it says. And then there's many other parts that we either disregard or we say that no longer applies or we say that's metaphorical. Yeah. So how do we get there? That's the question I'm wondering, like, because I think we all have this innate sense of, well, that one, that one, we're not like the stoning thing, right? We're probably not going to do that. We're not going to stone an adulteress, which by the way, have you ever read the book? I think it's by, um, oh, his name's, I think Jay Jacobs or JJ Jacobs. Um, he's the guy who wrote the, the year of living biblically. Oh yes. AJ Jacobs. AJ Jacobs. I always think JJ Abrams who made the star Wars films, the newest stars films, the star Trek. So, um, yeah, AJ Jacobs, he, he talks about, um, I saw him speak one time at this conference and he talked about how, when he was doing a year of living biblically, he ran into somebody in the, uh, in central park and the guy asked him what he was doing. Cause obviously he was dressed kind of strange and hadn't shaved certain areas. And, um, and so he told this guy what he was doing. And the guy said, well, I'm an adulterer. Are you going to stone me? And apparently he had been keeping pebbles in his pocket just so he could do that. And so he pulled out some pebbles and threw them at the guy who was deeply nonplussed and kind of went after him. <laughs> so, so well, yeah, and- we, we, we have this innate sense of what we pick and choose, but where does that come from? How come, how yeah. come that's a, a thing? And, yeah. And I just want to, and I just want to say, and then I'll answer your question that, this is not a couple random examples. There's also uh, material, particularly in the Old Testament, that says uh, if you're disabled in some way, if your body has certain blemish, a certain blemish, that you're not allowed to be a priest, right? Or you're not allowed to come into the, you know, certain parts of the temple, right? I, I mean, that's so. And, and atheists, our 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 audience who's listening should should atheists throw this stuff into the face of Christians and believers a lot. Right. And so this is not like something we can just avoid. So there, there, and that's, that's a whole nother question, right? What kind of, when you hear, you know, when you hear someone, you know, kind of a militant atheist speak to a Christian, they have a tendency to be, um, they have a tendency to be arguing against a Christian that doesn't exist because nobody takes all that stuff 100% 100% seriously. If we did, we'd be a very different kind of people. We wouldn't function really in the modern world. So, so go ahead. Yeah. So to your question, one, so I can only tell you what I do. Right. And this is, this feels like a dangerous conversation, but this is the unapologetics podcast. So I guess, That's right. Yeah. So I dangerous. would say a couple, a couple things for me. One is because I follow Jesus Okay, imperfectly, right? I'm a, I'm the chief of sinners. Look, this is not t- Dr. Gillespie and Dr. Brian claiming to be anything great, but I try to follow Jesus, Tim. 
And so the first thing is I look through Jesus and his life when I'm reading scripture. So he, the spectacles I put on my face, the glasses that I look through Jesus. So that starts to, that starts to provide some kind of editorial help at understanding what I'm looking at. Even the Old Testament. Even the Old Old Testament. What what do you mean, even the Old Testament? You you look at the the Old Testament through the filter of Jesus. Is that what you're doing? 100%. Jesus makes that claim. He says, you read the scriptures because you think you find eternal life in them. You know, this vision of life. Right. But the scriptures are only, you know, a predicate, a, 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 a launching pad for me. Mm. So Jesus, that's the first thing we have to understand is that, that, the, that, that I want to understand is that my Christian faith is not based on scriptures ultimately, but on Jesus. Right. And, and there's a difference there. And by the way, that's not Alex, that Jesus makes that claim. Je- Jesus is the one who says that. Then he said, then he says, I've not come to destroy the, the law or the scriptures, but to fulfill them. In other words, if you start to look at the scriptures through, through me, you're going to have the ability to see them in an enlightened way. Now, what does that mean? It means that there are some things that were sorted out in a particular culture in a particular time. And I think some of the examples we've given are, precise, are precisely that. Otherwise, you got to come up for a reason why you're not going to stone somebody who committed adultery or broke the Sabbath. Right. So, so what you're doing, you're actually, this is your, the, the hermeneutic principle, right? That you're talking about, right? To go back to that word. It's Jesus is kind of the filter in which we're going to look through all of this. And we're not doing that because we chose Jesus. We're doing that because Jesus chose to come down. And those are the claims that he made. If you're coming from our particular faith, um, our larger faith tradition, and even our, our particular faith tradition, if you will. So that's a hermeneutic issue and a hermeneutic point. That's how you're going to look at scripture. So you're going to look at Genesis through those eyes, right? So in Genesis yes. 3.15, when, when, when God says, you know, and the offspring of the snake will bite his heel and the offspring of the woman will crush his head. We know that we're, we're seeing a prophetic word about Jesus coming up. Now we never talk about Genesis four, which is essentially when Eve had a a son and went, I have made man with the help of God. And then was like, no, that's not the one. She was kind of surprised by that because she thought she had solved the problem by just giving birth. But um, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother issue. So, I, I guess I'm understanding what you're saying. I think I'm understanding what you're saying. Hopefully the listener will understand as well. That's the, your first human hermeneutic point in the way that you approach scripture is from a Jesus-centered filter. Absolutely. And, and I think that that, so, so what does that mean practically? That means that I personally, so this is my own personal, I spend an awful lot of time in the gospels. Mm-hmm in the reflections of Paul and the apostles in the New Testament, an awful lot of time with Jesus to make sure that my eyesight for the rest of scripture, for other spiritual sources is always viewed clearly. So that's not just a cheap thing to say like, oh, I just look at it through the eyes. That means I've got to constantly be retraining my vision 
so that when I go to those passages, I can start to have some Christocentric lenses. Right. Do you think that that's why, um, like John and his gospel, which is arguably the latest gospel written, um, do you think that's why he begins within the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, all things come through him and for him. I think, I think that's part of why he's writing like, hey, don't forget that when you read Genesis, when you read the Torah, yeah, Jesus is there. He's present. He's, he's in the midst of every word. Um, so we kind of chase Jesus through the whole of the Old Testament, which, which should change the way that we look at scripture. Now, I don't know that we've always done that, at least in our, our particular faith tradition, the Seventh-day Adventist tradition. I, I'm not sure that we've always done that. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, do I think we've always done that? Yeah. No. Um, I think that, you know, you, you ask kids like a, we talk about, you know, Sunday school and our tradition, Sabbath school. Right. You know, you ask kids in a Sabbath school class, who's your favorite Bible character? Right. And they jump up with, you know, Abraham, Isaac, you know, Mary, all these great. And then some kid is always like um, Ahab, Jezebel. You know, there's always one. That was probably you, Gillespie. Ahud. Yeah. Somebody's always coming up with some off the wall. Uh, but then, but then, you know, somebody will go, well, I, you know, Jesus is the right answer, of course. Right. It right. can't be any. And, but it did always strike it. It, it did always strike me that we kind of laid it out. Like Jesus was just one of many options to kids. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. So I do think to some degree, yes, we've taught that the word of Jesus is no more or less. I don't want to say inspired because we need to have a whole conversation about what we mean by the word inspiration, by the way. Right, right. But, but that the word of Jesus has no more or less weight. Maybe that's a better word. Mm-hmm. than say the word of Abraham or David writing a Psalm. And, and the reality is that the word of Jesus, to, to, to my way of thinking, and again, I'm just echoing Jesus here, is that the word of Jesus does carry a greater weight than the word of David or the word of Abraham. In fact, Hebrews says, in the past, God has spoken to us mm-hmm. through many different means. Right. Hebrews but in one. these last days, through his yeah. son, the exact representation of his being, the writer of Hebrews says, the Bible is great, but Jesus' word is greater. Right. Uh, that was that was the old tube television. For those of you that are old <laughs> enough to remember an old tube television, but now this is a 4K, a 6K. This is a higher resolution with Jesus. So you take the word of Jesus differently. To answer your question, no, I think sometimes Jesus has just been one of many of my favorite Bible characters that right. I could choose from. So, so let's take that to a maybe logical extreme, right? Let's talk about red letter Christians who kind of excise the, some other significant amounts of scripture um, to kind of lean the other direction. What do you think about, about that? And I can't, I'm not sure that's a great explanation of red letter Christians. I haven't done a lot of, a lot of research into that, but it seems like they put a, they certainly put a much greater emphasis on the words of Jesus that show up in many Bibles, you know, in words of, in, in the red color. Yeah, I, I don't know enough about, I know what you mean by, you know, because there's books that have been written about, you know, the red letter Christians. I don't know enough about them and their intent to be overly critical. My 
my initial impulse and worry is that somehow, just like Thomas Jefferson famously wrote his, uh, edited his own version of the scriptures that took out the supernatural because Jefferson was a deist and did not believe that God. And so you have a Bible that's about, you know, the size of three pieces of paper, basically. <laughs> My concern would be that um, that that's what the red letter Christians are doing. Is that somehow, is it a reduction of, so maybe you can help me with that. It depends on what their intent is. I, you know, cause that's yeah. a reduction that's even inside the gospels. Like, cause there's a lot of black letters in the gospels too, not just red letters. Right. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure that I understand that movement well enough to speak for it, but, um, but I think that, I think the idea of elevating the words of Jesus beyond what we often have is important. There's some faith traditions that when you read from the gospels, everyone stands up, right? And there's, there's a beauty to that kind of a concept of like, hey, we have, to, we have to recognize that these words have a certain amount of import, which again goes back to our hermeneutic point. Like we're going to be looking at scripture through the eyes of Jesus. What other hermeneutic issues do you find there? Is there like, so when we grow up, when we grow up in our tradition, what is it? Seventh, eighth grade, maybe ninth grade. I can't remember. You do a chain referencing exercise in your Bibles where everything that talks about the Sabbath, we go from one, two, three, that's all in purple or orange or whatever highlighter you have to have, you happen to have in your desk at that moment. Um, what do you, is that an appropriate hermeneutic to approach scripture? Do you think? Boy, you've got all the big questions today, Tim. Well, you, you, I, I began to think about this when you sent yeah. me some thoughts so, yesterday. So yeah, so I'll say a couple things and we might want to like circle back to this again and again. So, but a couple thoughts on this. Uh, so I'm going to suggest some things here that might require a longer conversation. One is I subscribe, you know, if my first hermeneutic is Jesus, my second hermeneutic is I subscribe to the perspective of a theologian by the name of Alden Thompson, who happens to be my neighbor. He lives four doors down from me. <laughs> But uh, in the, I believe it was in the 1990s, he wrote a book called Casebook or Codebook. Right, right. I remember that. And, and his basic argument was that we should not read the Bible as a codebook, like looking for specific rules or looking for specific proof points. And that's mm -hmm. the chain reference approach. Like, but rather we read the Bible as a book of cases. So that would be like stories, poems histories, mainly stories, like just loads and loads of stories that are written about in different ways. Um, and that we approach, we approach them and, and learn the lessons and the truths that they have to offer. My concern with the, the chain reference is it's basically saying there are specific bits of information, code kind of, and you got to track that and build it. Is that completely off base. I mean, do we do any subject matter study? Dr. Gillespie, is it ever wrong to go here? Five passages on resurrection or here five passages on love. Here's, here's 10 passages on. I, I, I don't think that that's always wrong, but I think it, it runs the risk of turning this storybook that's rich in, into just to something that it wasn't made to be. 
Right. Uh, I've heard people say basic instructions before leaving earth, right? The B-I-B-L-E. Yeah. You find, you find <laughs> the way that you're supposed to go. And then it's this, it's kind of recipe book for how you live your life. I think that, I mean, if you've ever worked in ministry, you know that there's people who've come up and have wanted to argue with you and they're really good at pointing and shooting, right? They're really good at using scripture like a dagger. Um, and in my first few years of ministry, I was so intimidated by those people because I didn't know the Bible as well as they did. Um, but let me be clear. What I learned as I grew is that I knew the Bible very well. I didn't just know those particular texts that they knew to, to buttress their point, right? So they had an inappropriate use of scripture. I think that the way that you approach scripture is by looking at big chunks of scripture and by looking at the themes that show up, show up through all the 66 books as opposed to one sentence or a half a sentence. I think we do damage. I mean, we, we are literally, you know, it's like reading some paper that's been declassified that has all these black marks that have been redacted. Oh, those are things that I guess we don't need to know. I've had people quote half a sentence at me and say, see, this proves the point. And I, you, we can know a scripture like a dagger, but then it's just going to cause the same amount of pain as stabbing somebody with it, which I think we got to be really careful about. Now, yeah. can you do a topical study of scripture? Sure. And I think you do that from a pastoral perspective. I do that on Tuesday when I'm writing my sermon. I don't do that on Saturday in front of my congregation, but it's always held within a greater context of the text that I'm studying. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. No, I think that's, it makes total sense. And I think that's right. And in fact, whether or not it's always been practiced, what our faith, our particular faith tradition, the Adventist church has taught is that we shouldn't nitpick little pieces of scripture and turn entire doctrines out of them, that it is the grand themes of scripture that should basically be our, our, our foundation for how we live and how we think that something should be well attested to. It should be, you know, loads of material. It should be, uh, yeah, I'm just reinforcing. I'm, I'm just underscoring what you said that it should be. Now we haven't always practiced that, but I think that that's absolutely essential. And I think in part, that's what Alden Thompson's getting at in Casebook, right. which is you read, as you've said, these big sweeping stories, collections of stories, and you begin to, um, uh, and, and then you begin to, to gain the, the, the truth, to come back to that word, you, you begin to gain these truths that inform your, your life. Right. I had a, um, I was at a funeral of a, he was my basketball coach in high school, actually. And um, the, the pastor got up to give the, the homily. And he said, do you know what kind of person um, this man was? And he said, let me show you what this, you know, the themes of this man's life. And he took the last 10 emails this guy had written. And he began to read the final exhortation in each one of these emails to the people. And it was all encouragement. I mean, it was, I, we were, the whole place was in tears by the end. And he said, I read you all of these, not to convince you that he was a good man, but to show you the theme of this man's life. Mm. And I was like, yeah, there you go. That's the right sort of hermeneutic 
to take a look at a, a, a lot of what someone has done or a lot of what scripture says and see if you can't find those parallels that are happening from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Because, and I, I mean, you know, I, I believe in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I believe that the Holy Spirit guided through those hundreds and thousands of years, those writers who would then, um, who would then speak to the character of God, of course, being most profoundly expressed, as it says in Colossians 1.19, right? God was pleased to put his fullness in Jesus, just like Hebrews 1. Like this, this recurring theme then that Jesus clarified, Jesus made it 360 degree, you know, beautiful surround sound. Now we understand it. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, I think that's, I, I think that that's, it is. And I think that that's beautiful. I might add a third hermeneutic. I want to throw this and see what you test, see what you think about this. So if the first, I want to come back, right? So number one, Jesus, I think we, you and I would agree on that, that that's, that's the the most important. Second is big chunks, big themes, uh, not, not nitpicking the little pieces that could, well, they could get you snake handling. Quite honestly, there's (laughs) a lot of people touching rattlesnakes because of one little phrase (laughs) You know, in the Gospels, like if you'd read a few more stories, you probably wouldn't be doing that. Um, uh, Third, the third I would say is there's a role for input that comes outside the text. And so, okay. So what I would say is that I, I have found people to be dangerous and to be dangerous to themselves who were, who were buried in, I've got my hands over my face right now. You can't see it, but. (laughs) That, that people are so buried in the pages that, that they're dangerous. And what do I mean? We need the community of faith to help us process the text. So we need other human beings to check us. Uh, Tim, maybe you shouldn't be touching that copperhead. <laughs> maybe, maybe this is not a good idea to, to be playing around with that python. In other words, right. the the... In fact, the scriptures indicate this to us, that scripture should be considered in community, not privately. There's mm-hmm. danger in private, private-only consideration of scripture. So that's one, is the community. Mm-hmm. Two is that there is a role for the Holy Spirit, which is not, the Spirit doesn't just work out, you know, from outside the text. The Spirit is external to the text and impresses us with things. So I, I've often said, and we can get this later. I don't need, I don't need to rely on some careful legalistic uh, ex- exploration of the text to know that we should treat women with equality, right? Because the Spirit teaches that pretty much. The Spirit yeah. teaches that, like we kind of know that that you got to treat people with equality. Uh, it, yeah, the, if that, the, the it, spirit the spirit teaches that in your house every day or your wife teaches that or yeah, the spirit right. teaches it through your wife yeah for sure so so but that's a little dangerous right you're saying that 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 actually you're saying that god still speaks still god still impresses god still inspires and that's extra biblical can we get can we get crazy with that well 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 sure you read john Krakauer's books about um certain um crazy religions that these happen to be offshoots of mormonism and please hear us we're not taking shots at any religious tradition on this podcast but that particular book happens to be about some offshoots of the latter-day saint movement 
where people's God told me to kill you. Yep. Under the Banner of Heaven. If you haven't read that book, it is a worthwhile yep. read. And if you come from our particular faith tradition, there are moments where you will put the book down and go, are they, are they talking about us? Yeah, that's I mean, right. We all got crazy uncles. But those are exa- those are the more dramatic examples of God told me, you know, I've known people who said, God told me not to pay taxes. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that as you sort that out in jail, right? Or, right. you know, God, well, pastor, you know, God is not impressed on me to pay, to, to give tithe to the church this year. I mean, I've asked Tim, I've had that conversation with someone. Well, that's interesting that God impressed you to do that. Or God told me to put this pamphlet under every single windshield wiper in the parking lot. Really? Well, that's fascinating. Yeah. I actually um, had a girl in college say, God told me that we would be married. God had not told me that but apparently he had told her. And by the way, calls confirmed in community. So until we both agreed, that wasn't going to happen. So those are the examples, right? Right. Though of, but it's also the case that we need community to speak truth to us. And let's not presume that Jesus is dead. He is risen. Mm. And a risen Jesus speaks to us through the spirit. Okay. Okay. So So you're... So your your hermeneutic just went outside of scripture a little bit. It has to. I mean, this is what Jesus teaches. And I'll I'll remind us of the conversation we had last week. Abraham got his information from the stars. God speaking to him through the stars of the heavens. He had no Bible. And Jesus clearly indicates, Jesus didn't even talk about that there would be a New Testament, by the way. It just came to be. And by the way, you and I love, I love the New Testament. I, I spent time in Luke this morning, Tim, at 5.30 in the morning. I, I love it. But Jesus gave us the spirit as well. Right. Which is not just the printed word, but it is information that can come to us through listening to what God has to say. Right. So, so I'm going to dig down a little bit deeper into our own faith tradition, right? Seventh-day Adventism. Because um, I think it's fair to say that 98% of the listeners will come from our faith tradition, I would bet. And if you're not, let us know, because that's pretty interesting. But um, so if you are, this is an internal conversation. But we have this person um, that has sometimes been called a prophet, Ellen White. And um, what is our hermeneutic with her as that is extra biblical? So, again, uh, hermeneutic is basically uh, the study of how we interpret things. Mm-hmm. So the question is, how do I interpret the writings of Ellen White? That's your specific question. I'd like yeah, to broaden it out. I, please I, do. Hey, I've got, please do. I got a whole stack of other books here on my, so I think we could talk about that too. How do I interpret anything? Right. But how do I interpret Ellen White? I think that um, one is I have to know context. And this has been a problem. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, some of these war stories really aren't useful anymore because we've moved past it. But, you know, when when my grandparents were growing up, they were afraid to have a bicycle because Ellen White said, don't buy a bicycle. Right. Well, actually, she was 
observing a craze where everybody was spending all their money on this new fascination with bicycles. So she wrote one letter, you know, she, she writes one letter to one person saying, Hey, maybe you should back off, you know, buying, you know, buying all these bicycles. And we turn it into in our, you know, in, in a fundamentalist approach. So this becomes a rule apparently that a bicycles are evil. Okay. You just said something that I think we need to delve into. Um, and we're going to get back to the, to the, probably the, the hermeneutic of Ellen White. And we, we might get back to that who knows when, but here's my question to you. When you say fundamentalist, what do you mean? So fundamentalism uh, has had uh, impulses at different points in history, but uh, including in, I would say the first half of the 20th century, mm -hmm. fundamentalism really in America in particular, um, rose up and it had a particular view of scripture that was quite literalistic, which is what you talked about earlier, number one. Right. So, so we take, we take everything. I'm going to have to give a caveat to, to everything, everything we say to yeah, the idea was that we're going to take scripture literally. The problem is even those people don't actually do that everywhere. It's just pick and choose literalism right. as we right. pointed out earlier. But fundamentalism is basically the idea is that I take everything literally. Mm -hmm. But that's a little bit of an oversimplification. It's I take it literally. I take my interpretation of scripture literally well, I, is what it really why, means. Right. But that's why I'm giving caveats. But there's stronger implications than that because fundamentalism, I believe, and I don't care if you're Christian, I don't care if you're Jewish, I don't care if you're um, Muslim any sort of fundamentalism has a tendency to have one more caveat, which is, and God agrees with me. Right. There's this, there's the, there's, there's the hermeneutic of, I take it literally. There's an, there's an epistemic truth, which is that God agrees with me. And then there's uh, a practical outplane of that, which means if you don't agree with me, you don't agree with God. And then there's a devaluation of not only your point of view, but even your humanity at times. Fundamentalism is a scourge on any faith tradition, if you ask me, um, because it leads, to, it leads to people treating other people less than human, I think, because they're valueless. And in fact, they're more than valueless, they're evil, right? This is why a fundamentalist, you know, the Westboro Baptist Church, can stand out in front and say the most horrific things, believing that God believes what they're saying. Right. Sorry. I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to take that. No, take that direction but, that, to you, but, but, but that's a natural outflow of the hermeneutic. So because certainty is their key word that they have to be absolutely certain. Right. 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 Okay. That's absolutely good. certain. And, and literalism means I'm absolutely certain about this. And so there's no room for doubt. There's no room for nuance. Mm -hmm. There's no room for different perspectives. Uh, and, and there's no room, as you point out, for journey. In other words, once I know it, you know. That's it. I, I would say, damn it. But, you know, <laughs> damn it. All of you need to get with it because I have, right. now, I have now proclaimed certain truth. And it gives no room for the patience that you see of God, by the way, mm. Moses, we're going to take four decades and we're going to process some things. <laughs> you know, fundamentalist has no room for four decades. You know, I say this to parents sometimes they're struggling, you know, with their, you know, say their 23 year old 
hey, give them, give them 40 years. I mean, we don't even think like that because we're like, oh my goodness, my kid doesn't believe in X, Y, or Z. Panic. And God's sitting back there going, eh, I'm going to go ahead and give Moses about four decades. And, and then he's probably going to still be kind of not get it all and be a chick. You know, he's not going to really want to go to Egypt anyway after four decades. Fundamentalism is so impatient with people. It is rigid. It is brittle. It is wooden. And it says, I read a line somewhere in Ellen White that says you shouldn't have a bicycle. Now, all of you better get with the program right now or you're going to be damned forever. That's what happens with fundamentalism. And what's crazy is so often, like they got a mountain bike in the back. Because they, so, they know it's more. unlivable. It's, it's say, unlivable. That's say sort of more rigid- about, yeah, yeah. yeah. That sort of rigidity is unlivable. There's yeah. no way you can live through that. And so what ends up happening is you become the worst critic of everyone around you while, while, you know, chastising yourself, probably, I mean, it's a incredibly uncomfortable way to live chastising yourself for not being able to live up to a standard that you think you believe in, but you know, you can't do it. So you don't really believe in it, but everybody else should do it. Like it is a, it is a, I mean, it is a poison in people's lives. No, I, I can't emphasize how important what you just said is. Or to play with your metaphor, or you're not, or your example, or they have a tricycle out back. Yeah, <laughs> because because she didn't say anything. She just talked about bicycles, not tricycles. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. And 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 that's what legalism does right there. Right. And you know, and this gets into a whole different conversation. You know, I and we got to be careful. Our editors, by the way, have told us to stay on track that we're that we're already <laughs> running the risk to chase rabbit trails. But this is the problem of legalism: is legalism never takes things seriously. Let right. me say that again: legalists don't take things seriously. They just find ways to buy, to get tricycles when they shouldn't have bicycles. Right. Legalism and, is never asking the most of what you can do. It's always asking the least of what you can do. No. Yeah, it's it's it, it's it's crazy. It's 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 just a crazy way of thinking, and it's it's harmful. So I would say, this is really going back. I think to that second hermeneutic, which is big ideas, mm-hmm. big sweeping themes, centered in the health of Jesus, which is always about love and respect right. and honesty. The fundamentalism just violates those first two rules all over yeah. the place. Yeah, it it needs to be principles, not prescriptions, right? Yes, but I mean, there's certain prescriptions, but if they come out of some basic principles, they tend to be healthier, right? You know, and that's why, um, yeah, anyway, maybe we've, maybe we've, so, so I think whether, whether it's scripture or whether it's the writings of Ellen White or whether it's any other material, or frankly, if I sit at crosswalk and I listen to one of your sermons, the way that I absorb that needs to not be, Tim said this one line. Yes. That is Please. not, it needs to be, let me absorb. In fact, I would argue for those of us that listen to sermons, I need to not listen to Gillespie one time and criticize it. Right. I need to absorb 50 sermons over the course of a year or 250 sermons over the course of five years, absorb the general themes of preaching, not one line or one sermon or use one illustration. That's just very unhealthy. Dude, I say that to people all the time because inevitably when somebody first shows up at Crosswalk, like it's a big culture shock for them. And 
I've had so many people after coming once immediately want to engage me on something. And I'm always like, Hey, first of all, I don't know you. I don't know who you are. So I don't, I'm not beholden to answer your questions. We're not in community together. So what I need you to do is I need you to come for the next year and engage with this community, engage in service with this community, engage in giving to this community, engage in, in learning with this community. And if you have this same question at the end of the year, I'll be more than happy to talk to you about that question, but we're not going to talk about it today because this is just a drive-by. And I'm not interested yeah. in, in you know, your drive-by fundamentalism because I, I don't even know where you come from. I'm not in community enough with you to know how to have this conversation hermeneutically correctly, right? I may take vast assumptions about you that I shouldn't do, and we're just not even speaking the same language. And so I think that's, I think that's a really important point. Um, yeah. And I, and I think, no, that's the, exactly. And I think too, you know, Jesus says, uh, I would like to tell you more, but you're not ready. Hmm. Um, Paul says, now, now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. So right. why is God holding out on us? I think it's really interesting. I think it's really interesting in cases like that, where we're basically taught, you can't go down this fundamentalist know-it-all route because guess what? You can't know it all because right. Jesus says, there's some things I'm not going to tell you. And Paul says, there's some things God's not going to tell us. And I, I think that's the absurdity of it. That's the absurdity is I'm going to be a perfectionist and God's not even going to tell me anything because God's holding out on me. Now think about that for a second. <laughs> even if you know everything you possibly could know. And I think that's, that's this third point, which I think is, I, which I think is, is critical is that we ground in Jesus hermeneutic number one. We see the big themes hermeneutic number two, but I think that there's this hermeneutic of humility and maybe that's what we're talking about here, which uh, allows the spirit to talk. It allows the community to talk. Like you said, it's a slow down a little bit, you know, listen longer, have some humility. Uh, truth is always going to be partial that's what the Bible says. The Bible says God's not going to reveal all things to us. So I, that'd be my third hermeneutic would be the hermeneutic of humility. Dude, that's really good. I like that. I've never heard it expressed quite that way. Um, but man, that's, that, changes the, that changes the way we approach scripture. There's an openness that we approach scripture saying, I don't know it all. So our agendas have to set back. It's the way we approach community saying what you have is, is important as well. It's the way we approach, like from a pastoral point of view, the way we approach preaching. I want to I wanna help elucidate the scripture, but at the same time, I want to be very aware that I don't know everything. And it could, it could be, I could feel differently about this because God may change my mind. I mean, have you ever preached a sermon 10 years later on the same text? And you think, man, I really, I really didn't understand 10 years ago. And I'm embarrassed for the people who listened, even though hopefully they were blessed by it. But there's that, that, you know, the truth is you should get out of ministry after about four years when you run out of notes from seminary, then you should just leave because your, your mind's going to change a lot. <laughs> I, I, uh, was going through our storage room. Uh, my wife and I been going through our cleaning up and stuff. And I came across a box and a, a bin, mm -hmm. a massive bin, and I couldn't lift it. And I'm like, what is in here? I opened it up. I probably have 600 sermons in there. It's when I used to keep wow. paper copies. So this is like from the first, whatever, the first part of my, the first third of my pastoral ministry. Now they just, you know, we house everything digitally, but these are paper copies. 
and I started to look through there. You want to talk about the box of horrors. <laughs> and it's what you're saying. It's like, oh, 24-year-old Alex, he did not get it at all. You know, 28-year-old Alex, he did not get it. And, and here's the problem. You and I will go through our digital records, you know, 20 years from now, when we're in our 70s, say. Feel, feel the same way. 50-year-old Alex, so what was he thinking? And, and so we should be humble. You know, right. and I think again, Jesus, big themes, loads of humility. Yeah. And, you know, I think you start to read scripture healthier that, you know, in a healthier way yep. at that point. For sure. You know, I was saved having to go back and listen to my old sermons or look at my old sermons because my daughter erased 700 sermons from my hard drive. 700 when she was nine years old. It was 10 years ago and I have not forgotten yet. 700 sermons. It was, was she acting on, it was God's behalf. Was she acting on God's behalf? Probably. (laughs) I think she was just trying to clear her phone so she could play more video games at the time. But um, yeah, no, it it ended up working out well because I worked for a pastor the first, my first few years, uh, associate pastor that I was working with and he never saved a sermon, new one every single time. And I, I, the older I get, the more I think, yeah, there's something to that, you know? The yeah. fact that the fact that I have years and years and years of uh, the fact that I have years and years and years of digital archive sermons of me is a little bit nerve wracking, I would say. Um, but Alex, man, this has been a good conversation. Uh, we want to respect everyone's time here, but um, thank you for that. Give us the three hermeneutic points one more time. Yeah, and I, I want to say again, this is not the 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 law of the land. This is, I think, what Tim and Alex have grown to appreciate. So let me, so I'll say that in humility. One is look at scripture through Jesus. Mm -hmm. Two big sweeping themes, as you pointed out, Tim, the big stories, the big content, don't, don't nitpick to, to one little half a phrase that gets you in trouble. Right. And three, I think, you know, there's a humility in relying on the community of faith, the promptings of the spirit and recognizing our own inability to see the whole picture and that God even kind of tips us off that that's the way it's going to be until, until such a time in the future when we see more clearly. Absolutely. That's so good, Alex. Thank you so much. I so appreciate our time together. This has been uh, Dr. Tim Gillespie and Dr. Alex Bryan on the Unapologetics podcast. Thanks for hanging out. 